So if I were to ask you this morning a question, if I were to ask you what the names Augustine and Mary Ball, Mary Ball being hyphenated, I think, Augustine and Mary Ball, would that mean anything to you? No? I was hoping somebody might <laughs> twig. Uh, if I told you their second name, the last name, was Washington, would it make any, have any significance for you? If I told you they had a son called George, <laughs> now you're interested. So this morning, if I were to ask you, do you know who Amram and Jochebed were? Amram and Jochebed. At breakfast this morning, I asked Christine that question, and she immediately said, yes, Jochebed was Moses' mother. And then she used her natural reason and said, so Am Amran must have been his father. So she worked that out. That's the kind of conversations we have at breakfast time. <laughs> it's really it's a lot of fun. Uh, it, it, but there you go. That was, she got it. Uh, I don't know if any of you got it, but this is helpful because as we read our text for today, their names aren't mentioned. Let's read our text. It's chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, and they're telling you ahead of time why these people are important, okay? By faith, Moses, but then it doesn't go on to talk about Moses, except indirectly. When he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. In other words, here are parents who are famous because of their child. Augustine and Mary Ball are famous because of their child, George Washington, the founder of the nation, great hero of the War of Independence, the great warrior of the English. It's a great position to be in. But here that this, these parents are remembered because their son was Moses. Moses is the second most significant person, perhaps, in the Bible. When John is introducing his gospel, he says, he puts it like this, the law was given by Moses, but grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read that when the Messiah comes, he will be a prophet like Moses. In this book of Hebrews, there has already been this kind of comparison and contrast between Moses and Jesus. Moses was faithful over all of God's house as a servant. Jesus has been faithful over God's house as a son. So Moses is a very significant person, but humanly speaking, he would never have become that significant person in history. He wouldn't have survived infancy were it not for Amram and Jochebed, his parents. This verse is focusing on three elements of the story. First, there's a decree of the king, 
There's the defiance of the king and then the defeat of the king. First of all, the decree of the king. You can see a reference to that in verse 23, a reference to the king's edict. Now, you need to know the background of that. It's familiar to many of you because uh, Exodus, as the book, has been taught here before. Uh, during the reign of Joseph, during the time of Joseph, the whole family of Israel, Israel being the name given to Jacob by God and then being used to describe his family into the future, uh, the whole family of Israel came down to Egypt. Twice in the Bible, Egypt has a crucial importance for the salvation of the church, once under Moses and once under Jesus. It was in Egypt that the church of Israel was protected from annihilation and from disappearance, either by being attacked by enemies or dying of famine. Egypt was a safe place for the church under Moses. Under Jesus, you'll remember when Herod heard that the Messiah was born and the Messiah was born in Bethlehem, he unleashed a wave of desire to kill that child, and the parents took Jesus down to Egypt, just as Jacob had taken his family down to Egypt for, for protection and salvation at that period in history. In fact, God had said to Jacob, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt because I will make you a great nation there. And down they went, and down there they began to multiply. It says in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, they were fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Here was a, a, a one family that grew to become a nation, perhaps of a million or two million people, we don't, we're not quite sure, there in the land of Goshen, which was a productive land. And then in, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, one of the most ominous and chilling verses in the Bible can be found. There arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. In other words, there was a time when Israel was known throughout the land of Egypt because of their relationship to Joseph. Their presence in the land of Egypt was a reminder that through Joseph, the whole nation had been spared a terrible seven-year famine, that Joseph had warned them of the famine, had prepared for seven years for the coming of the famine, that God had used one of these Israelites to be the protector of all Egypt. They remembered the history. And there are times in the history of the world, in the history of Western civilization, for example, where the church of Jesus Christ's very presence on earth has been responsible for wider good, greater good to the whole community of people. When the very presence of Christian people in a society like the American society from its earliest days has been responsible for restraining evil and encouraging good within society as a whole. That was the effect of Israel in Egypt. Then there arose a king that knew not Joseph. There came a period in the history of Egypt 
where that memory, that racial memory of God's goodness through these exiled people living amongst them had been lost, and everything changed. The king said, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they fight for our enemies against us and escape from the land. And they devised a strategy, a strategy that's been used again and again and again by dictators in all kinds of places all over the world since then. Play to people's fear, portray the worst scenario, propose the final solution. In spite of all of the good Israel had done, at this stage in their history, the leaders of Egypt set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And then they issued an edict that every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the river Nile. That's the background. This decree is a decree announcing the end of Israel. If all the boys get killed, if all the boys die, then that will bring an end to Israel as a nation. That was what was going on. It was genocide was the purpose of the king. And how many people there in Egypt among the believing Israelites were asking themselves, where is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob now? Where are the promises of God now that the seed of Abraham would fill the earth and bless the earth and all the families of the earth? Where is that promise of Jacob that out of Judah will a righteous king come, the scepter would rise, and to him the peoples of the world would gather and find salvation and safety? A king's decree. But then secondly, we have the defiance of the king. Look at the text again. By faith, when Moses was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents. People may have been asking questions. What is God doing? But God was doing something. They didn't know it was happening. There was no news bulletin going around. Nobody was texting or or tweeting the fact that, that God was about something. Nobody knew about this. This was kept under wraps. It was seriously under wraps. It had to be or else Moses' life would be at risk. Silently, God is preparing for the preservation of His church. We need to know that. That what God is about is not always obvious to us. What God is about is not always transparent to us from our perspective. And the writer of the Holy Spirit tells us that these people acted by faith. Now, you may say to me, well, It says by faith, but these are parents. Surely they were acting as parents act. They wanted to protect and defend their child. That's what parents do. It's true. That's true of human parents. It's true of parents of uh, all kinds of creatures. Uh, Every year we buy two hanging baskets to put in our front porch. This year we were a wee bit late, and we noticed that there were lots of birds pecking the window and tweeting at us whenever we went out the door. They'd obviously remembered that that's what they'd come for every year, so we went out and got them, put them up quickly, and before we'd hung them up, they were down there and starting the work of building their nests and having their families there in our 
in our things. And if you went out to our port, let me just tell you this, they would shout at you and tweet at you. And one came and landed on the post at the stair, looked at me, and this bird should have been an opera singer. The amount of noise that came out of it is it tweeted to me that I should not be on the porch while their children were playing around. It is parents' in instinct. It is a natural instinct to protect your children. And that is absolutely true. At one level, you could say, what, what is happening here is natural affection. But the Holy Spirit says, it was by faith. So we go with what the Holy Spirit says. And what we learn from this is, that natural instinct, here's how one person put it, natural affections, once they're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, they become subservient to and useful to faith. Another person said this, grace does not abolish nature, grace perfects nature. In other words, God works with natural affections. Faith employs natural affections to accomplish the will of God and the work of God. It doesn't ignore them or bypass them or pretend they're not there. It uses them. It enfolds them, if you will. In many ways, when God's interests God deals with us so kindly that very often God's interests and our interests work together. They're joined together. They, they concur together. Oh, yes, there are times when what God wants and what I want conflicts. But very often that, that is not always the case. And here we have grace and nature coming together. There's a little, there's a little comment when Paul is writing to Philemon about their mutual friend, Epaphroditus, that he, refer, he says to Philemon about Epaphroditus, that he is dear to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In other words, he's dear to you because you love him, you love him, you like him. You have a natural affection towards him. But he's also dear to you because he's your brother in Christ. Grace and nature working together. And so we're told that these people were in the grip of grace by faith, by faith. We're told that they were in the grip of grace and that by faith they noticed something about this child. They noticed that he was a beautiful child. Now, I know that if you've had children, they were all beautiful. Every child I've ever baptized was a beautiful child, and all of our children were beautiful as well, and you, you probably feel the same. Patty Lee came to show me her little baby uh, just in between the services there because she's, the baby's getting baptized soon, and that little baby's just so gorgeous. Is that all this was? Stephen, the martyr, in Acts chapter 7, says that Moses was beautiful to God. 
In the Exodus account, we're told that he was fair to look on. He was physically beautiful as a baby. Now, that was going to be important, and we'll see why it was going to be important in a moment. But his parents recognized something else about him. This particular beauty they seemed to associate with something they knew about the purposes of God. Now, some people think that they had a special revelation, but that's not mentioned in the Bible, and and what's not mentioned in the Bible, I suppose we shouldn't try and speculate about. But what we do know is that they belonged to the covenant people of God. They knew the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They knew that God had come to Jacob and said, you know, I'm going to take you to this other nation, your people, your descendants, and they're going to serve the people there. That is, they're going to be in slavery to them. But afterwards, they will come out, and they'll come out with great possessions. They would know the promise that that Joseph referred to the fact that they would be there for four generations or 400 years. There's dispute about, about that. They would know that that promise was there. And somehow or other, these words of God, this revelation of God, and the sight of this baby, and the conviction of their heart by the Holy Spirit, by faith they understood that there was something very significant about this child. So much so, they were prepared to risk their lives to defend him, risk their lives to protect him, risk their lives to make sure that no harm came to him. That's why it goes on to say that they were not afraid of the king's edict. You see, this was an edict. This was a standing law. It was a statute, an ordinance pronounced by the king, agreed and enacted by the state. It decreed genocide. It was one of those instances in history that illustrate at a creaturely level and at a very material and human level uh, the, the spiritual conflict that lies behind everything that goes on in our lives. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 4 describes this. He talks about the dragon, that ancient serpent known as the devil and Satan, who stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. There the child is the Messiah. There the child is the Messiah and all who are connected to him, all his believing people. And it's saying that when the Messiah came into the world, Satan desired to devour him, to destroy him. The moment Moses was born, he was in danger. And the danger was exactly the same as you find in Revelation 12. Why would Satan target the little boys of Israel in Egypt? Why? Because he knew about the promise of God. He knew about the seed of Abraham who would bring blessing to all the families of the world. He knew about the promise of the Messiah, and he wanted to destroy Christ before Christ could come into the world. He has always been opposed to Christ. And all the hatred that Satan has for King Jesus, Satan has for the people of God. And it was this that was behind the wicked edict of the king. And the church of Jesus Christ 
is the greatest threat to Satan's empire, to his undisputed rule that there has ever been. And Satan is a murderer from the beginning. But it was the king's edict. What do we do with that edict? When it says in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6, children obey your parents in the Lord, echoing the Ten Commandments, here's what the larger catechism says, that this means, this refers not only to natural parents, but to all superiors in age or gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance over us in a place of authority, whether in family or church or commonwealth. And it points to those duties which we mutually owe in, to our, in our several relations as inferiors or as superiors or as equals. So here's where the Christian finds himself. They find themselves in this position where there are edicts, there are decrees. And the Bible says we are to obey the ordinances of men for the Lord's sake. The obedience is to come from our hearts. We don't recognize the authorities over us. We understand that those authorities have been established by God, that there is no authority except for God, that the powers that be exist by God's decree. And yet we also know that there is a line beyond which the authorities may not go. That is, they may not dictate what my conscience what my conscience convinces me, informed by God's own holy word, that I must not do. This is what, what is happening in the book of Acts, whether, when Peter says, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. But we cannot speak anything other than what we've seen and heard. We ought to obey God rather than men. Or those young men in Babylon before King Nebuchadnezzar, be it known to thee, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image you have set up. Moses' parents' action was an act of defiance against legitimate power. It was an act of loyalty to King Jesus that they had the child, and that they hid the child for those three months. The text tells us why. They feared God more than they feared the king. Here's what Jesus said, fear not those who can kill the body, but after that there is nothing else they can do. Rather fear Him, fear God, who can cast both body and soul into hell. It was an act of defiance. But then thirdly, in the story, we see the defeat of the king. After three months, they could conceal the baby no longer. The baby was getting big. Presumably, the baby was getting noisy. It's hard to keep little babies quiet. And the concerns that they had, the concerns that they had were not for their own safety, but for the safety of this child. And now they act again. We saw, we saw in the first lesson from the first point that grace perfects nature. 
But grace also heals reason. Faith is not in contradiction to reason. These people thought it through. Faith enabled them to think about the issue, facing the circumstances that they faced. Here's what we read in Exodus 2. When she, the mother, could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, and she dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She made it like a little ark, watertight, and she put the baby in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. She chose to hide him in plain sight. She chose to put her baby in the ark on the river of death, the very river where little baby boys were being thrown to their death. The whole image comes from the Bible, doesn't it? It comes from the, the ark, the ark, and the flood that caused devastation. These parents are trusting in God. They're trusting in the providence of God. They're trusting in the salvation of God. But as Oliver Cromwell once said, the great English uh, protector, trust in God and keep your powder dry. They put him in the water near where the princesses of Egypt bathed. They had a plan, and they put their plan into action. And they got Miriam. Miriam means Mary, by the way. Miriam, his sister, to stay hidden among the bulrushes, keeping an eye on the basket with the baby. And so the, the moment came when the princesses came down. Miriam saw it. She saw the princess who noticed this little basket, who picked up the little basket and heard a whimper. Miriam was watching very closely the face of this woman who's opening the blankets. She sees on the face of this Egyptian princess the look of love when she sees this beautiful baby. God made him beautiful to catch the eye of the Egyptian princess. And Miriam knew they had her. She comes skipping out of the bulrushes and she says, um, you'll be needing someone to feed the baby, to nurse the baby. And there are all these women among the Israelites who've had their children th th torn out of their arms and killed. One of them must be nursing. I know exactly the person you need. And the Egyptian princess was really, oh, that's great. On you go. So off she went. She brought back Jochebed. Oh, hello. I hear you need someone to nurse the baby. Uh, I can do that. And so she did. Josephus, the uh, great Jewish historian, says that Jochebed would have 
weaned this child, and the period for weaning was the first 12 years of their life in those days. It was. 12 years. I know it sounds like a nightmare, girls, but there you go. <laughs> and that boy, that boy was influenced in the important years of his life by his mother. Just imagine that. He learned Egyptian. He learned Aramaic. He learned Hebrew. As a child of a princess, he got the best education it was possible to get anywhere in the world at that time, in Egypt. You see something of the intellectual brilliance of this man in that he gave us the first five books of the Bible. God insinuated right into the royal palace the means of the palace, palace's undoing. He was a plant from the very beginning. You see, when God does things, He doesn't always do them the way you thought He would do them, but He does them well. He does them well. And this boy who was to be spared was going to be the one of whom it would be said, the Lord spoke to Moses face to face like a man speaks to his friend. This Moses is the Moses whom the Lord knew face to face, another verse says. This Moses who would act as the great Savior of Israel. The seas would part before him. Rocks would break forth water to feed these people. The manna would come down from heaven. The ravens would come to feed them. He would lead them through the desert give them their tabernacle, give them their law. They would see the power of God descending on Mount Sinai as God came down to visit with Moses there on the mountain. God makes him the great forerunner of the Redeemer, the Redeemer of the world, who would come to save the world. God has something bigger in view bigger than they could ever have imagined when that little baby was born. We forget their names. They're just two ordinary people, trusting in God, doing what they could do to try and resist the genocide that raged all around them. But they did what they could, and they trusted that God would overrule to His own glory. And doing what we can do, whether it's as a church or as individuals, is really all that we're expected to do. We're not expected to leap up over high buildings, be like Superman. We're not expected to swing down like Spider-Man. We're not meant to be superhuman. Brothers and sisters, we just do what we can do. This past week, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland had their General Assembly and they're under pressure there in Northern Ireland now. Southern Ireland voted for abortion, and now the British state are putting pressure on Northern Ireland to change their law and to make abortion on demand uh, something that to be imposed there. And not only that, there are movements in the British state to bring in 
this discussion at least in the British state and within Europe particularly if they stayed in the, the European thing uh, to, to bring some kind of euthanasia in uh, down the road. That's been in the cards for a while. One almost equals the other. And the, mon the moderator of the PCI at the General Assembly said this, I say in a hundred years if Christians in Ireland are known as a strange minority group of people who don't kill their babies and don't kill their elderly, we will have done a great thing. Doesn't matter if they win at the elections. Doesn't matter if we're in the majority. Doesn't matter whether the world gives us good press. What matters is that we do what we can do and we're faithful where He's put us. That we take a stand against the genocides of our own age. And not, they're not just that, the, the spiritual issues of our day for truth against error, for orthodoxy against heresy, for life and against death. The rage of the world and the faith of the church will, in the end, both serve the accomplishment of God's will. And this little story of these obscure people who, in the providence of God, gave Israel its Savior at that time, are in the Bible to encourage you and me, however obscure we feel ourselves to be or weak we feel ourselves to be, that being faithful in our small corner with the opportunities that present themselves to us, being faithful, being faithful enables us one day to prove that He who called us is faithful, and He will do it. He will do it. He will accomplish His will. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts. We pray that we would use every opportunity we have to speak gently to our children, our grandchildren, our friends' children about the things of God, just as Jochebed must have done to her, to her son that she had to treat as if he were someone else's. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful in our small corner just as Amram and Jochebed did, trusting you. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful in our generation and that we would not look for the lights or the applause except the applause of one, the one that counts, the well done of our Savior, the Lord Jesus for whose glory's sake we pray. Amen.